Series 1, Episode 2. A series on autism and mental health. This series is called From Doom to Bloom. A podcast from Jakob Baxt, a trauma survivor who is on the autistic spectrum. This series is on autism and mental health. It covers an abbreviated version of my life's story and how you can help yourself or someone you know who is on the autistic spectrum and suffers from PTSD-type flashbacks and nightmares and regularly feels suicidal. This episode is my life's story. Breaking the shackles of control and despair. Hard beginnings. From nursery age, it was a constant battle to try not to get into trouble. If I did what I was told, I'd misunderstood and was meant to do something else. If I asked for clarification, then I supposedly wasn't listening. Even when I had correctly understood what I was meant to be doing, it was impossible for me to do it, as the teaching method was incorrect for me. Anyway, you get the gist. Whatever I did was wrong, until the head teacher at the time realized that there was something wrong. This was when she rang my mother and said, if Jakob is ever going to be able to read, it will be because you have taught him. From that point on, I had masses of input after school and eventually I was able to read. However, in order to be able to learn to write, I first had to do many exercises to work on my fine motor control. In primary school, I had to have private typing lessons as neither I nor my teachers could read my writing. This was after constantly getting into trouble for scribbling gobbledygook instead of writing. I said I am writing as neatly as possible. I kept being called a liar till eventually my mother took me for assessment for an assessment in London. They then wrote a report and only then did they believe me that I was doing my best. Eventually at age 11, I went with my mother to Israel to see Professor Feuerstein and others for assessments, etc, etc. I continued with various exercises until eventually with time, my coordination, fine motor control and eventually my writing improved and became somewhat legible. It was not until I reached the age of 14 that finally most people could read my writing. This was all, I was always getting into trouble right through into secondary school. This was due to a constant discrepancy between what was said and what was meant as well as, as, well as other issues such as a teacher who could only be heard by people who had developed an ability to hear tones that humans cannot normally hear unless right in the person's face, among other issues. This was until I left school, as it is identified in the wider community at the age of 14. Rolling towards the cliff edge and an emergency break. 
When I joined Be'er HaTorah, a specialist Talmudical college, things suddenly changed. I was finally understood and got the help I needed at that time. However, things were still not plain sailing as I was still being attacked and threatened in the streets, especially during the dark winter nights. It was at approximately 7.31 evening during the dark winter months when I crossed Prince Concert Road to head home for supper when suddenly my way was blocked by three obs. It was pouring with rain, so I had a large umbrella. I had nowhere to run because on my left was the road with a constant flow of traffic. On my right was a brick wall. If I'd run back along Prince Concert, they would have chased me into Eli Street, which is a dead end and totally deserted at that time of day, so it was safer to stay put. I attempted to force my way through with my umbrella, but was unable to do so. Finally, there was a lull in the traffic. However, before I had a chance to realize and run, one of the attackers jumped into the road to block me off. It was at this point that the one in front of me, to my left, tapped his pocket saying, Shall I stab you? Shall I stab you? In the meantime, whilst I was getting ready to block the knife, the attacker in front of me, to my right, punched me in the jaw. At this point, a rather large muscular bystander became aware of the situation and scared them off. It turned out afterwards that he was an undercover police officer who couldn't blow his cover. These individuals had escaped from prison school, so they were put back. The police advised me that it was unwise and downright dangerous to, to press charges. After two years, I moved into Yeshiva Tiferes Yaakov, the Talmudical college where my father worked at the time. I was there for three years, then she had for two years, till Thursday the 8th of June 2006, when I was hit with mental health problems as a result of the repeated attacks from random individuals, at which point I was admitted to Fellside Ward, Tranwell Unit by the crisis team. I was there until I was discharged on the 29th of August, 2006. After that, I went to Taskhouse Espa College in Sunderland for two and a half years. Prior to the start of the two and a half years, I went to try it out for a couple of days. My mother took me there in a taxi. My parents had arranged a taxi to fetch me at 4 p.m. The arrangement was that my parents would pay them when I got back. The taxi was delayed, and when it did eventually arrive to cl collect me at approximately 5 p.m., I tried to tell him my home address to ensure he knew where we were going, and he yelled at me, I know where we are going. I then fell asleep until I half woke up in the middle of nowhere. I said, where are we going? You shouted at me, I don't know, you should have told me. I replied, I tried to, but you wouldn't let me, and he just kept driving. At this point, I figured he must be a fake and is trying to kidnap me. I jumped from the taxi and ran for my life. He chased me. Some people tried to help me, but were prevented from doing so. He then threw me to the floor as I was attempting to dial 999 for the police. 
He was struggling, dry, he was strangling me and I had no choice. I had to kick him in the chest to maintain my existence. He took my phone and drove off after saying, when I get my money, you will get your phone back. At the time, Dean were running a massive illegal protection racket. I was, I walked uphill until I eventually got somewhere I recognized and was able to walk home. The police couldn't do anything because there were no cameras, so his word against mine. The next day, my father took me and my mother fetched me. Once the funding was sorted, I had a shared taxi with an escort. After Tasker, I studied horticulture in Newcastle College at their West End site for three years. During the second year, on a Thursday afternoon, when we were doing a practical, one of the other students picked up a garden fork and started charging at me. Grabbed a spade to def I, I grabbed a spade to defend myself, hoping not to have to use it. I absolutely bellowed, waving the spade, and you put the fork down, and I was able to escape into the building. I washed my hands after ensuring he was not about, returned to the group. This was an almost fatal mistake. As he came charging out the fire exit, screaming, I'll effing kill you. He was going for my neck, but luckily a support staff was able to restrain him. This was after security had removed him from the premises and he returned. I managed to get away and re-enter the building. I was then taken into the office and gave a written statement which two witnesses signed, by which time the police and my father had arrived. The police couldn't do anything because he had not actually managed to touch me. However, he was kicked off the course. I, com I completed the course. However, I had to go to college an hour early in the morning or it was too dangerous to travel and I could not get the bus back to Central Station unless there was a police officer on board. I completed the course and could not find work. I eventually started volunteering, which was a complete shambles. Eventually, on Saturday the 17th of November 2012, I was first taken by the police to Fellside Ward Tramwell Unit. There were no beds, so they transported me to West Willows Ward in Sunderland, where I was admitted. admitted. This is the old Sherry Knoll Hospital, which no longer exists. But they couldn't control the anti-Semitism from staff and patients. One of the nursing assistants dressed up as Hitler and a patient did a Nazi salute. So on Wednesday, the 21st of November, 2012, I was transferred to the Beedwing in South Shields, which no longer exists. I was there for ages until on the 14th of March, 2013, I was discharged into a shared lives arrangement, which, was, which started off okay until sometime time after to that when she found me a job which went very well until my fainting started. Then she became very controlling, forcing me to go to work when I wasn't medically fit. Eventually I developed knee trouble and absolutely nobody would take me seriously until I literally could not stand. I was crawling up and down the ladders at work. I thought I was getting to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. This went on and on until I saw a specialist privately who was doing part-time NHS and part-time private. I also had a private MRI scan, 
The specialist then wrote a letter to my GP to refer me to Bob Fleck in the Freeman Hospital, as all doctors in my surgery had refused to refer me, saying if A&E didn't find anything, it is obviously psychosomatic. According to my shared life's carrier, everything was psychosomatic, until I saw Bob Fleck, who determined that it was hyperextension of the knees, eventually after developing ankle problems, had to have special shoes and knee and ankle braces. This continued with continued issues of repeatedly being called a hypochondriac until eventually hospitalized for tests until I was eventually discharged after they had agreed to stop bullying me. But the controlling continued until I was driven over the cliff, so to speak, and on the 13th, 13th of September 2016, I was admitted to Fellside Ward Tranwell Unit on the 14th of November 2016. I was discharged into a new shared lives arrangement that was going very well. This was until my flashbacks and nightmares flared up again. I tried to let my shared lives carers know that I needed to get help, but they didn't understand what I was trying to tell them till it was too late. I was at a res at respite over the next week. The following Thursday, the 29th of December, 2016, I was going to work when I suddenly took ill. I tried my doctor's surgery and got nowhere. I was headed for the bridge, but instead I went to the police station for help and handed in the Stanley knife instead of killing myself. I was then arrested for having a weapon in a public place. After being in the cell all day, I was eventually interviewed and seen by a solicitor. I was not charged and handed over to the crisis team. I was seen the next day by Dr. Lyons, who adjusted my medication to no avail. On Sunday the 1st of January 2017, in the evening, I was found by police on my way to jump off the time bridge. They managed to calm me down and get me back to my respite. On Monday the 2nd of January, I went to the beach with my respite carer and kids. By Tuesday the 3rd of January 2017, I was back at my regular shared lives carers. I returned from work early as I was in the middle of a phased return. I was unable to continue. Jonas tried contacting the crisis team who were a complete waste of time. Eventually, Jonas answered the phone to the duty social worker who then managed to get the crisis team to phone. Jonas's wife answered the phone to the crisis team and then called me to take the phone. They were more than useless. They made me worse until Jonas's wife had to physically stop me from stabbing myself. Eventually, they came out at approximately 9.30 p.m. I was then admitted to Collingwood Court after midnight, making it Wednesday the 4th of January 2017. They knew nothing about the combination of PTSD with ASD and therefore totally mishandled me when I was distressed and suicidal. I was on and off of 5-2 and in and out of seclusion. A big part of the problem was that they didn't realize how threatened I felt at times until it was too late. I tried to talk to them, but they didn't understand or believe me until another patient reported what was going on. At this point, I was only not yet six foot under because of this patient. It was at this point that they finally started to take me seriously. 
I was still in and out of seclusion at times and on and off for 5-2 till eventually I was put on a section 3. There were a number of missed opportunities for me to be discharged before things happened that made me worse again. This was due to a lack of communication between the hospital and social services. My flashbacks were very severe. Although I could often divert and get things back under control before they controlled me, there were times when there was no warning whatsoever and they came like a flash and that is when the suicidal behaviour happened. It is at these times that 5-2 and seclusion was used. However, had they calmly spoken to me instead of diving in, perhaps they could have prevented self-harm and an automatic reaction of self-defence and the unnecessary use of 5-2 and seclusion. Eventually I was able to get things under control until one Saturday evening I was attempting to enter my room. But unbeknown to me, there had been a new admission, and to put it mildly, he was, was, he was basically an extremist neo-Nazi. As I was approaching my room, which was where he was standing, he started shouting, the Holocaust was a fake, it never happened, the Jews made it up, whilst getting very aggressive. I managed to quickly lock myself in my room. This was an absolute necessity, because I was afraid he would attack me and possibly kill me. The next thing I knew, the door was opening as the nurse used her key to enter as she wanted to make sure I was okay as she had heard it all from down the corridor. Possibly the office door was open. I'm unsure where she was at the moment of the incident. We spoke for a while and, was, and I was able to calm down before things escalated further. Then Shamus finished. I did my evening prayers and then phoned the office to ask someone to bring my grape juice from the fridge so I could make Havdalah as he was still out there screaming. The Jews did 9-11. I was frightened of being attacked. I had to ring the office for someone to escort me to the shower. Then on Sunday morning, something happened before I left my room. I do not know what happened, but they had to put him in seclusion until Tuesday when there was someone who could legally enforce a move, whether, whether bed management liked it or not. This is because Monday was a bank holiday. I had been doing relatively okay for a while, when suddenly my grandmother was in palliative care. Then on Friday the 17th of June, 2017, she passed away. I was still in hospital. The nursing staff were very supportive. I was managing, but then, still to this day, I do not know exactly what happened on the Saturday, the 18th of June, 2017. But I had been hit by the flashbacks and was very agitated and again was put in seclusion. Eventually I came out. Then on Monday, morning the 20th of june 2017 the psychologist called me in and said there was sexual abuse i had no idea what she was talking about and couldn't ask the nurses because i had a meeting back to back i was talking to my mother whilst we were waiting for the doctor and i told her what had just happened and she asked me if i knew what i had done and i did not have a clue so she then called in a student nurse 
to ask her what on earth the nurses were talking about. To which she replied, nothing of the sort was said in the meeting whatsoever and she has no clue what the psychologist was talking about. She will ask the nurses. She did and they had no idea where the psychologist got that rubbish from. By that time she had left the ward. They tried to contact her for an explanation, but could not get her. After the meeting, I tried to find out what had happened, but no one could tell me other than that nothing had happened. And they do not know why the psychologist had said that or what she could have possibly been referring to. I tried to put it to the back of my mind and get on with whatever, but I couldn't. I tried to go to sleep that night, but woke up with nightmares and wondering what on earth had happened because nobody could tell me what these, what these accusations were about. I then spoke to the nurse on duty who said she was going to tell the day staff that has to be sorted out today. They tried phoning and emailing but got nowhere until they received an email that she was coming 9am on Wednesday the 22nd of June 2017 to explain herself. This was an absolute catastrophe as she still did not explain herself. It was not until Sam explained to one of the nurses what I thought they were saying that the psychologist realised that which she, had, she said to me meant to me and the nurse realised what that, what that which she said to me meant to me and the nurses and that it meant what it means in court. However, it meant something entirely different. It was a medical term, not a legal or action term. Only she had ever heard of this medical terminology as it was something that she had only just invented. It meant that they thought that maybe I had been sexually abused in the past. Things went downhill from there and on Tuesday the 4th of July, the nurses took me into the family room when I was calmly trying to get on with things. I had no idea what they wanted and then they told me they were transferring me to another ward where there were more staff and are more able to support me. Then two heavyweights came in and strapped me up for no reason and took me out to a mental health ambulance and they were sitting on either side of me, me and the nurse sat opposite me. When I got to Beckfield, PICU Sunderland, I was put straight into seclusion. I was, in, I was in there for 24 hours. I had no idea why. I was talking to staff and was able to use a pencil and paper that was shoved under the door to write down, down what I was going through. After about 24 hours, I eventually came out on Wednesday the 5th of July 2017. Once I came out, it was easier as I was able to talk to staff properly instead of through a glass window. I did have my ups and downs and there were times when I really struggled. Eventually on Friday the 14th of July the section was lifted and I was transferred to Shoredrift Sunderland. Things then got difficult when there was a new admission and I was thus being threatened and abused constantly and the staff took no notice. I was put back on the section 3, the staff took no notice of what was happening to me until a fill-in staff was doing my observations when something happened. At some point during this admission, the SHO had to send end me to A&E at the Sunderland Royal due to suspected appendicitis or possible gallstones. 
Holmes, as I was waiting in the waiting area, someone was brought in by the police. However, I was unaware of his presence until his abuse started. I prefer not to go into too much detail, other than it was highly anti-Semitic. Security had to remove him a few times as he kept returning. Eventually, I was moved somewhere quieter. The police had a lot of problems finding him, as the address the hospital had for him was his mum's address, and she had kicked him and, and, and she had kicked him out. They eventually found him. He pleaded guilty as well as to other offences that the police wanted him for. My mother and I had tried to get me or the other patient who kept threatening and abusing me moved, but they wouldn't do anything until I nearly got murdered on the Thursday, on Thursday the 9th of November 2017. Then and only then did they move me across the Springrise Ward, Sunderland. After many meetings and being involved with Menkep and inspired support for quite a while, as there were many false discharge dates, as they had been in Collingwood Court, Newcastle, I was eventually discharged to my new flat on Friday the 15th of June 2018. Between Friday the 15th of June 2018 and Wednesday the 8th of May 2019 was quite a storm at times. Between Friday the 15th of June 2018 and Wednesday the 18th of July 2018, I had been going to Groundworks on a Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I had been going to Inspired Support Tuesday and Thursday. On Sunday I generally, generally went out. Already, while still in hospital, I had been slowly building my fitness with Karma Bass, one of my Menkep support workers, going hiking. I had been going hiking and and mine and down my, the mine with Karm quite regularly. On Wednesday the 18th of July 2018, the flashbacks were so intense that I actually hung myself and died for three minutes and had to be resuscitated. So I was told a few days later. The first thing I knew was that I was lying on a hospital bed on oxygen in A&E resuscitation unit, wearing a neck brace as they suspected a broken neck and upper back. I was, I was tried off oxygen in the MRI room and was fine at room level so could come off the oxygen. When the doctor came after examining the MRI and gave me the all clear, she then referred me to the mental health team. The crisis team were then called and I was admitted to Collingwood Court that same day. I was discharged the following day, Thursday the 19th of July 2018. This was the closest I ever got to death. Between the 19th of July 2018 and the 19th of August 2018, I'd been doing pretty well all things considered. I'd been sticking to my routine. Things started to improve for a short time. I had the second support worker at night from an agency. Then things settled and it was no longer needed. Things were going very well until Sunday the 19th of August 2018 when I was admitted to Felside Tranwell Unit. I was discharged on Wednesday the 22nd of August 2018. Things progressively improved since then. It was towards the beginning of 2019 that my cycling really started. Things were generally going very well until my admission 
to walk with Ward Morpeth on Sunday the 6th of May 2019. I was discharged on Wednesday the 8th of May 2019. After this, things have been onwards and upwards. I have never looked back. It was after this, on the 2nd of May, Bank Holiday, 2nd May Bank Holiday 2019, that I did the 100km charity ride in London. I have never been the same since. How, you may ask, and more importantly, how can you turn your own or someone else's life around? You will find out in the next two episodes. Yes, I have finally escaped the shackles of control and despair. The next few paragraphs will be describing how things have changed and what I have learned along the way. Hopefully this will help you or help you to help others. Many important lessons have been learnt along this epic journey to general health and well-being as well as my overall productivity. The most important lesson I've learnt is that no matter what life throws at you, the decision is yours. It will either break you or it will make you. The choice is yours. However, that is not entirely true as even if you decide it will make you, it could still break you unless you make the right decisions to allow your first decision to take effect. This can be a complete minefield at times. However, I finally self-trained as a minesweeper. This is metaphorically speaking. I do not mean you should go out with a mine detector onto a minefield and risk getting blown to pieces as you step on a mine. The first thing you have to do is develop a Mr. Bean attitude for when you do stupid things like forgetting to turn on the kettle or picking up the washing up liquid instead of the oil or vice versa. Then you need to learn how to take past traumatic events and shoot them in the woods. The next step is to decide what you want to do with the rest of your life. The next step is to plan how you are going to get there. It is important to note that in order to, to achieve anything, one must first collaborate with the mind. Having learnt all of these important lessons, I am now much more productive and much more organised, which in turn has helped my productivity. I'm all, I am also active, although there was a time when I thought I would never walk again, let alone get back on the bike. I certainly did not think I would ever be riding 100 kilometers on a very hilly route, on a very hot and windy day, riding into the wind practically the whole way. To demonstrate how I have had to walk the tightrope tight rope for most of my life, I'm going to give you a sneak peek into what my first challenge was before I could even start to dream of dreaming about, dreaming about doing the calf ride. The first major challenge was getting my mother to allow me to have my bike. This was not easy at all, as she told me to fetch my bike. Then my father told me she had changed her mind. It's very complicated. No explanation was given. Eventually, the next time Tom Hurst, the support worker and assistant manager, was on shift, he told me that my mother had emailed him that she wants a full risk assessment done before she will release my bike. We then discussed it and he emailed my mother the risk assessment. 
Only then, one, then was I allowed to fetch my bike and helmet, etc. For a good while I'd been going to Groundworks Woodshed, however this had to close and move due to the council taking the land back. I made a few pieces of furniture for my flat there, including a coffee table and a lockable cupboard. I was at this time at Inspired Support. I was doing my video series and writing on Tuesdays and doing football on Thursdays. The next challenge was getting used to riding again. The first time I got on my bike, I could barely go twice round the block with, without half collapsing. Eventually I started cycling with John Knight, one of my Mencap support workers. Then, on, then one Friday night, I wound my mother up that I wanted to do the calf ride next year, even that was a joke. My mother replied, you can't, it's too far. I laughed and said only joking, which I was. No way next year, let alone this year. Two very important lessons have been learnt from this. This is besides the lessons mentioned above. The first lesson is, be careful what you joke about, as it may just happen and sooner than you even joked about. The second lesson learnt is shut your mouth and open your mind and go for it. Keep mum out of the loop until the time is right, if it is ever right. We started off off-road till I got my confidence back. We then eventually took the train to Hexham and cycled back. Then cycled to Hexham and took the train back. Eventually my father came up with the idea of me doing the calf ride. He had discussed it with my brother Shlaney, Simon. I then rang my brother to discuss it. After various phone calls between my brother and the organisers, it was finally confirmed when I had to call my brother back as my phone was in my fleece pocket in my rucksack. As I was in the middle of a 72 kilometre ride and could not get to my phone on time to answer it. I set up my webpage, and, and so did John, and the rest is history. Although it was a bumpy ride to get to this stage, I've nevertheless survived and thrived. In fact, when I look back, I begin to realise that it is not despite of, but rather because of these challenges, that I am where I am today. I must state that the most important thing to do when things are difficult is to talk to someone and make a ridiculous joke of it as long as you are not offending anyone. If you can learn to do this, then you will remove the uncontrollable urge to commit suicide. Not only that, but you will actually be able to clear your head enough to act on all the lessons mentioned above. In the next episode, I will be giving various exercises that one can do to ultimately change their view of themselves and thus finally leave a, leave a dark and miserable world and enter the bright and happy world that they should have been in right from the start. Or so I thought, but then things suddenly changed for the worse when we went into lockdown in March 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. During this lockdown, I did a project to document this crazy unprecedented situation. The lockdown was a major struggle, but I somehow managed until the 25th of the 6th, 2020. Things just got too difficult and I landed back in the Walkworth Ward until Wednesday the 1st of the 7th, 2020, 
A week and a half later, I went away, which went very well. At some point, things got difficult again, but I managed to speak to Adam Clark, a new support worker. We then started looking into horse riding lessons, etc. On the 20th of the 8th, 2020, I had my first horse riding lesson. It is very difficult to explain, but it totally changed everything. The only way I can attempt to explain it is by comparing it to an electrician rewiring a property that has very bad wiring. In other words, it somehow removed the negative pathways in the brain that had been created over the years as described earlier and did a hard reset on my brain. And this has achieved what nothing else could. It has allowed me to safely relax, which previously was a very risky thing to do. From Thursday the 2nd of the 2nd of the 7th, 2020, as things slowly opened, I adjusted my program accordingly. As of the 14th of the 9th, 2020, I go to the woodshed on Monday. I went to the woodshed on Monday, in spite of four on Tuesday, Wednesday and Friday. I did horse riding lessons on Thursday. Uh, Thursday. I, and I was planning on volunteering with horses once it was able to start. That, however, that didn't happen in the end. I went away from Monday the 31st of August to Friday the 4th of September. I then continued my riding lessons on Thursday the 10th of September. I've never looked back since. My whole life has completely changed, whereby most of the content of the next few episodes are now superfluous for me. However, it should be very helpful for others. It is now completely onwards and upwards, despite the whole COVID mess. A lot has happened since then, and my program has changed a couple of times since then, but it is onwards and upwards from here. Here, how did I do it, you may ask? Wait and see in upcoming episodes. Thank you very much for listening. I hope this really helps you or helps you to help someone else. Continue listening to this series and act on what you have learned.